Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 46, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And he came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sights. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. I want to welcome you all back to our continuing series titled Following Jesus, where we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark in order to learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. As we talked about last week, we have three goals for this series as we go through each and every passage of of Scripture in Mark. My goal Number one is to help those who do not know Christ to actually hear the gospel, to believe and put their faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that every single text in the book of Mark gives us a great opportunity to present the gospel and call people to turn and believe in Christ. Every text that we go through points us back to to what we truly need, which, by the way, is forgiveness through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so it is my aim all the time, every time I preach, to proclaim the gospel with every text that we go through, not just in Mark, but any text that we actually preach on. Secondly, the second goal for this series is to help those who know Christ, who do believe, to grow. As we've said multiple times, and I will continue to say as long as I'm a preacher here, part of the Christian life is growing, right? And the mission of our church is to help with that. In fact, our mission statement is very simple. We are here to create spiritually maturing Christ followers. We not only help people to come to faith in Christ, but we help them to grow towards maturity. We help them to grow up in their faith. And what we need to learn, right? And we need to help them uh, to, to do that. We need to help them to learn to be more like Jesus. And we know that growth comes from what? Learning more about God. Growth comes from from understanding him better. It comes from learning about doctrine and theology. And as we said, the Gospel of Mark has given us a great deal to to look at theologically and doctrinally. It has a lot to teach us in order to help us to grow in our faith in Christ. And third, our goal has been in this series is to help you who believe and who are growing in Christ to take action based on what you actually know Our goal is to mobilize you toward the mission that Christ has called all of us to participate in. And believe me, if you're a Christian, you're part of that mission. My goal is to help you to to move towards that because because if you're a believer, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you belong to him, he calls you not to just believe but to follow him. 
Right? Not, not just to learn things about him, not simply just to think good thoughts about him, not to just grow in your theological understanding of him, but to actually actively follow him, to go where he goes and go where he leads. Our goal is to help you with that. And so these are the three goals that we have for, for this series. With each text we proclaim the gospel, with each text we look at what, what it teaches us theologically, and with each text we look, we look at what it, learned, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to actually follow Christ. And, and, and this text that we have been in, right, this text about Bartimaeus, as we talked about last week, really is very rich and has so much to teach us. In fact, um, there's more to cover in this one text than we could do in multiple sermons. And so what we decided last week was to really focus on, on the gospel aspect of that text. And what we learned is the story of Bartimaeus and this encounter that he has with Christ is a beautiful picture of the gospel itself. This story has so much to teach us about the gospel and saving faith. In fact, last week we talked about ten things that it taught us. Number, the first is that what we see in Bartimaeus and his blindness is the truth of our condition. Right? He's physically blind, but it helps to point us to the fact that we are spiritually blind before Christ. It also helps us to see our hopelessness without Christ. Bartimaeus was helpless to heal himself. Just as we are unable and helpless to save our Selves. We also saw that when the way that we come to Christ, we come to Christ helplessly, dependent like a child who can do nothing more than cry out. That's what Bartimaeus did. He could do nothing more except cry out to Jesus. And then, fourth, we talked about the persistent faith that is rewarded. Bartimaeus cried out to Jesus, and they were telling him to shut up, but he would not be silenced. Our faith needs to be like that, that we should continually exercise faith in Christ, a persistent faith that stops at nothing. And then we saw the beauty of God's mercy and the truth that God always has time for us and, and time for those who hear our cry. I talked about this message last week um, with our, our brothers and sisters in Pakistan. And when I said, remember, you know, God is never too busy for you, his face dropped. He'd never even thought about that. Of all the billions of people who are praying to God, he was like, that is the most important thing I could have learned today, is that God is never, ever too busy for us. That's, that's God's mercy. We also saw in this text the sovereignty of God and come face to face with the facts that, 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 that those who come to faith are the ones who are called by Christ. We saw Christ come and the man re- called and the man responds, which then is the nature of saving faith. We come to Christ only depending upon him. There's nothing else that we can do. As the, the hymn writer writes, nothing in, in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Right? And then, number nine, we saw that when a person comes to faith in Christ, the natural byproduct of that is what? To follow him. Bartimaeus, once he could see, immediately began to follow. And then finally, the last thing was, what we saw in Bartimaeus' story is our hope. See, when his eyes were finally opened, and his eyes actually saw the lights, what was the first thing that he saw? His Savior, Jesus Christ. And so one day, when we leave this world... When we finally open our eyes in heaven, that's the first thing that we're going to see is our Savior, our hope, which is Jesus Christ. And so, so as we said, this text just by itself is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And it was profitable for us to spend last week talking about this and looking at this in detail. But there, again, is still so much more that we can learn from this. Not only is this a picture 
of the gospel, it's a beautiful picture of what it means to follow Christ. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to be like him. It's a picture of really what Jesus is calling us to become. And so in light of that today, we're going to take a look at this same text again. And as we're doing this, we're going to focus on this story you know, and, and really kind of try to glean from this what it means to be his disciple. Now, in order for us to do that, we first need to see that this passage of Scripture actually fits into a much bigger overall context. This is not a text that you're going to be able to fruitfully glean leaving it by itself. You must see this in a larger context. These verses about how Jesus heals this blind man fits into a larger context that has a very big overarching theme to it. And that theme is this. It is about the greatness of those in the kingdom of heaven. In in chapter 8, 9, and 10, Jesus has been teaching them about what it means to be a true disciple in the kingdom of heaven. What it means to be, to be great in God's kingdom. Because remember, what, are the, what were the disciples arguing about? Who is going to be the greatest? And Jesus makes it very clear that greatness in the kingdom of heaven is not like what they're expecting. It is different than greatness according to the rest of the world. Right? And that's what we need to realize. In this text before us, right, this text here actually is a capstone of that entire discussion. It is the, the end point of this entire conversation. Right? It's the final point, so to speak, about greatness and what it means to be great in the kingdom. You see, there's something important that we have to really keep in mind here, and that is this historical context that surrounds this story. The historical context really influences how, how, how we understand what's happening here. You see, historically speaking, at this time there's a rising expectation of who Christ is and why he had come and what that meant for his followers. Right? There was this rising messianic expectation here. And this is revealed to us in chapter 8, after Jesus heals the first blind man in this, this, this conversation, this overarching kind of story. Right? After he heals the first blind man, Jesus then asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, John the Baptist, come back from the dead, or Elijah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter giving supernatural insight, says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. Right? Which means you're the one that we're waiting on. You are the one that we have been hearing about since we were little kids. You're the one that everybody's been talking about. You are the one that everyone, if you're a Jew, you were expecting to come. And that is the truth. Jesus is the one the Jewish nation had been expecting for hundreds of years. Right? There, there was this, been this rising momentum during the intertestamental period. After the, the, the last book of the, the Old Testament and before the birth of Christ, there was this rising, growing expectation of the promised one, the anointed one, which is what the Messiah means, the anointed one who was to come into the world. You see, the, the Jewish people began searching the scriptures, and they began to talk about this coming Messiah long before Christ was even thought of or even born. In fact, they started talking about it several hundred years before he was born. And with every passing year, this expectation began to grow, right? They began this expectation for, the, for this Messiah to come and reveal himself and set Israel free. 
And over the, over the decades and over the centuries, strong political leaders then would rise up in power and people would look to them and think, that's the Messiah. And they would then lead people to, to rebel against the authorities and their oppressors. And then people would follow these men even to their death. If you remember us talking about how there was a group of them that were drowned in the Sea of Galilee by having millstones hung around their neck and drop out, dropped in the Sea of Galilee. Right? When these leaders then would rise up and then be killed... Their rebellions would be crushed, and people would think, oh, we had the wrong Messiah all along. That means the Messiah is still to come, and that expectation then would continue to grow with every passing year. And this expectation began to really gain momentum around the birth of Christ. Remember the story of the Magi? What happened there? They came to Judea looking for who? The king of Israel. And they came to Herod, and Herod then asked his advisors, and he'd asked the scribes and said, is this true? And they said, yes, he's supposed to be here soon, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Right? There was this, this growing messianic expectation even then. And if you remember the story, Herod then went and had all, all the babies in Bethlehem killed because he didn't want the Messiah to come. He did not want the political order to be upset. And so this, this, this expectation continued to grow. Right? And this expectation rose all the way throughout the life of Christ. And in fact, it began to really grow when John the Baptist appeared and began preaching in the wilderness. People were coming from all over, repenting and being baptized for the repentance of their sins and anticipation of what? The coming Messiah. Right? And even the Pharisees were like wondering about that. And they came to investigate and asked, are you the guy? Are you the one? And he said, no, the one that's coming, though, I can't even, I'm not even worthy to tie his, his sandals. Right? And, then, and then Jesus begins his ministry, and he begins preaching and proclaiming that the kingdom is, is, the time is now and the kingdom is near. Repent and believe the gospel, and he begins to preach the gospel about the kingdom, and he begins to do all kinds of miracles. And again, this expectation of everyone around him is growing. It must be him. Look at the things that he's doing. The, the, the sight have received, I mean, the blind have received sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk. Right? To the point that the Pharisees themselves begin to look and investigate him. And they're following around him around and asking questions and challenging him. And, and because they expect the Messiah to come, they just want to make sure he's not the imposter like, like other ones were. And so this expectation of these Jewish people and the expectation of Jesus' own followers is growing. Right? Especially the twelve, the apostles. Everyone is waiting and hoping for the Messiah to finally reveal himself. There is this, there's this expectation of who he is and what he's supposed to do. And what we see, and what we need to see and understand, is that this expectation that they have then profoundly influences Jesus' disciples, and it affects their actions, and it affects their attitudes. I mean, if you understand the way they're thinking now, the way they behave, and what they struggle with makes a lot more sense. The reason why they continue to act the way they do and the reason why they seem not to be able to understand what Jesus is clearly saying to them is because this messianic expectation is blinding them. Remember what we, what we said, the disciples were spiritually blind. They believed with all their hearts that Jesus was the Messiah, which is true, but as such that he was going to Jerusalem to lead a military conquest, overthrow the Roman army, and then, the Jew, then Jesus would ascend to the throne of his father, uh, forefather David and become the king of Israel, and then the nation of Israel will once again be sovereign as a nation and be a world superpower. And then they... 
being with him, his closest friends would be his closest advisors, the most important people in the kingdom. This is their expectation. This is what they're hoping for. This is what they're believing in. This is what they fully expect to happen. And so when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Right? And Peter says that you're the Messiah. That is the truth. And Jesus commends him for, for the insight that he's been given. But in that moment, Jesus also knows what they're thinking. He also knows what they're expecting. And so then he says, in light of that, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He's saying, in essence, he's going to die and be resurrected. And Peter responds with what? <laughs> That's not going to happen to you. Why? Because that does not fit at all the expectation that he has. He is the Messiah. He can't die. He's going to be the king of Israel. He can't see the, the global implications of Jesus' ministry. He knows right, that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't fully understand the truth of why Christ is here. Even when Jesus plainly tells him. And so Jesus says that he will die and be resurrected. Peter rebukes him, and then Jesus rebukes him right back and says, Get behind me, Satan. By the way, I think that's probably like the craziest rebuke I've ever heard in my life. Get behind me, Satan, right? Right? And he says, You're thinking of, of things from a man's perspective and not God's. And then he begins at that moment to tell the disciples very clearly, Following me is not going to be the way you think it's going to be. You think it's going to be this way, but it's not. He's saying it's going to be very different than you imagine. Following me means denying yourself. Following me means taking up your cross and willingly suffering in order to follow me. In fact, Jesus says, I want your entire life. I don't want part of your life. I want it all your life. And that might even involve you having to give your life in service to me. Following me is not what you expect it is. Life in the kingdom is not just a little bit different, it's radically different than you think it is. Jesus makes it clear that their expectations of him right, are not true. But in that, the disciples still can't see it. Why? Because they're spiritually blind. Right? This is what this whole section has been about. Spiritual blindness. That's why in chapter 8, 9, and 10, Jesus says three times, three times he talks about his death and resurrection, and three times we're going to see his, his apostles act in ignorance of what he's saying, and three times Jesus is going to talk about what it means to follow him, what life in the kingdom is going to be like, and three times he's trying to tell them it's not what you expect it to be. And we see this pattern repeated. And contextually, this is, this is important because... What's the issue here? The issue is, is they're spiritually blind. They, they have their minds made up. They have what they expect to happen here. They believe that Jesus is going to be the king. The only question for them to be settled is, who's going to be the person in, in the greatest position while we enter the kingdom? That's why they argue about who's going to be the greatest. That's why James and John go to Jesus himself and say, can you make us the greatest in the kingdom? Because, because they want to be great. And, and this, is, right, this, is, this is important for us to understand. They want to be great men. They want to be powerful. Jesus is going to keep telling them, though, that greatness is not going to be about that. Being great in the kingdom is something completely different than you expect. Greatness in the kingdom is not at all what you think. And so you have to 
You have this exchange that goes on between Jesus and his apostles that happened three times, and they still don't get it. But now in this moment, after all that, now in this moment, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's going through Jericho, which is about 15 miles from Jerusalem, and they have this heightened messianic expectation of, of not just the disciples, but many people that are following and traveling with them. Remember, it's Passover, and millions of people are descending upon um, on Jerusalem, and many people are traveling, and they've heard the rumors about the miracles, and, they, and there's this growing fervor. Could this be the one, right? There's this excitement, this fervor that's growing. In fact, what we're going to see is the very next section that we're going to read is where Jesus rides into Jerusalem in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, riding on a donkey. The king entering Jerusalem on a donkey, and people are going to go nuts Right? They're going to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is, is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Everyone has the highest heightened expectations. And at the peak of this then, uh, at, the, at the peak of these, these expectations and all these emotions, as they're marching forward, thinking that they're about to have this military victory and they're going to have what they've been longing for, Jesus stops to perform one last healing miracle. And he does this, not by accident, he does this to emphasize what true greatness in the kingdom is really about. That's what this whole entire three chapter section has been about. It's been about true greatness in the kingdom. What does it really mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to be his disciple? And, And they're going to continue to learn. It's not what they expect. Even today, people don't expect what Jesus is telling them. Greatness is quite different in our minds. And so today, when we look at this text, what we need to, to keep in mind is that this is a summary of what we've been talking about now for the last three chapters. Right? And the thing that we need to see right up front is the truth that greatness in the kingdom is countercultural. This is the thing that we just need to embrace. This is the thing that we need to own. Right? It is against culture. The culture does not get Christianity. The culture does not understand us. The culture does not understand what biblical greatness in the kingdom is about. Greatness in the kingdom is unlike anything that culture says that it is. What does the culture say about greatness? What does it say that it is? According to our culture, greatness is about what? Power. If you've got power, you're great. It's about position. It's about who you are. It's about privilege. What am I allowed to do? It's about popularity. How many people love me? That's greatness, according to our culture. right? Don't believe me? Then look who our culture says is great. Athletes. right? Celebrities. The very wealthy. Politicians. Even though people hate politicians, they are still esteemed as great and give them a lot of credit and power. People with big names, people who have big platforms to speak from, people who have lots and lots of money and resources, people who have a lot of political muscle, people who are famous and popular. That's, by the way, I don't want you to know, that's why celebrities are always lecturing us and giving us their unsolicited opinions about everything because they have bought into this notion that culture is telling us that greatness is about popularity. And a lot of people have kind of bought into it and think that they should listen. I'd say that that's the, that makes them the least qualified to speak to us. But that's what our culture says about greatness. 
And, and, and I want you to understand, that's, that's what the first century Jewish people believed about greatness too. Including the disciples. Right? In fact, that's what their desire is. That's their ambition here. They wanted to be great members of an earthly political kingdom. They wanted it all. They wanted the power. Right? That's why they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. They wanted prestige. They wanted position. They wanted privilege. They wanted popularity. You remember, this is a culture at that time where everyone in society had a value on a scale. The least important people were the children and the invalids and the, and the ones who were blind. And then on the other end, you had, you had kings and top political and religious officials. right? And, and then in between, everybody else kind of fell in depending upon their social status. On the lower end, you had the poor. On the upper end, you had the rich. But Jesus said greatness in the kingdom was not about that at all. In fact, it wasn't about even being served, but it was to be a servant. And not just a servant to the rich and famous, but it was to be a servant to the, even the least important, least valuable member of society. This is the point that Jesus has repeated over and over and over again. But what we're going to see in this text is that in spite of Jesus' repeated admonitions, they still didn't get it. It begins in chapter 10 with verse 46. It says, And they came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. And Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting on, by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Now, just, just think about this. Okay? Just, I think it's important. This is what it means to meditate on Scripture, by the way, is to really think these things through and kind of imagine and put yourself in, in some of these situations. Jesus is coming down the road in this blind man, a man in, of t- in terrible need. Right? A man who is, by definition, needy. Like, like he has nothing he lives in darkness. There is no social accommodations for him. There, there's no building codes accommodated. His only hope is for someone to feel sorry for him and give him a little bit of money so he can sustain himself a little bit more. He is in terrible need. He hears that Jesus is coming in his way, and he begins to do the only thing that he can do. He begins to cry out to Jesus to get his attention. Remember, as we talked about before, right? He did not have the ability to politely walk up to Jesus and stop him and say, excuse me, but can you help me? He didn't have that ability because he couldn't see him. Right? There was a great crowd. He couldn't see him. All he could do was try to get his attention. And so he begins to shout out for, for Jesus' attention. But notice how the crowd reacts to him. It says that they tell them to be quiet. Right? But as we talked about last week, What's actually being communicated here is actually much sharper than that. It's actually much more forceful than that. It's actually more like, shut up, right? Shut up, you're, you're, you're making a scene. You're embarrassing us. Stop shouting for Jesus. Now, why would they react this way to this man? Why would they treat him this way? Because he's obviously in need. Right? And, and they know that Jesus is the one. If anybody could help him, it's going to be Jesus. So why, then, would they tell him to shut up? The truth is this. They are treating this man this way because they simply don't value him. And that's just the bottom line truth. They don't see value in him. 
They don't think he's important. They see no value in him. He's just a blind man. He's a burden on society. He has no value. I mean, right? what right does this blind beggar have to stop the likes of Jesus, the Messiah? Doesn't he know that Jesus has more important things to deal with than him? Doesn't he know that the Messiah is on his way to become king? Who does he think he is? Jesus didn't have time for this. We don't have time for this. This man's not important. So he just needs to shut up. This, by the way, is the exact opposite of what Jesus has been saying. This is the exact opposite of what Jesus has been communicating for three chapters. Jesus said, if anyone, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of who? Of all. Including the unimportant people. And he illustrates this point by how. He says, it says in verse 36, that he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child, and children were considered to be the least important in society. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus is saying that greatness in the kingdom is about valuing and loving even the least important people of all. That's stark contrast to what we see here. He emphasizes the point in Mark chapter 10. But whoever would be great among you would be your servants. And whoever would be first among you must be what? The slave of all. And even says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus didn't just talk to talk, he walked to walk. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, I came to be of service, and to be of service even to the least valuable and least important person of all. I have come even to give my life for them. And if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to, be my, you're going to follow me, then you need to actually do what I say and follow me. And he says in chapter 8, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And believe me, if there is a verse in the Bible that Christians wish they could erase, it's that one. Like This one here dispels all myths about what we're called to do. Right? This dispels all the myths of, hey, you just, put your, you just make a profession of faith of Jesus and you're good, nothing ever has to change in your life. This right here dispels that because he says, follow me. And following means what? Denying yourself. Taking up your cross and willingly suffering to follow him. Greatness in the kingdom is not at all about position. It's not at all about power. It's not about political clout. It's not about privilege. It is about valuing. It is about valuing everyone, including the least valuable and the least important. <clears throat> this has been part of Jesus' message for three chapters now. <clears throat> Jesus had been explaining this upside-down nature of the kingdom of heaven. And he says very clearly, the most important people in the kingdom will be those who serve everyone else and who love and value everyone else, including those who have the least value. That's what he's been saying. But, then the, but how does the crowd respond? How does his disciples respond to this person in great need? Shut up. You're embarrassing me. Shut up. I've got more important things to do. This is the exact opposite of what Jesus says. 
Talk about spiritual blindness. They ironically are looking down on a man for his physical blindness, not at all aware of their spiritual blindness. Kind of makes you wonder what you're spiritually blind to. But then it says, in verse 48, But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. This is an important point for us to think about. With all of the activity that's going on, with all the noise and all the hoopla, and and Jesus' mission right there in front of him, it's near, the end is near. He's 15 miles away from his destination. He must have felt the weight of the cross already. Jesus, with all that's going on, And all the distractions still hears this man's voice above the crowd. And the reason for that is because Jesus, even though that he is very busy, still is sensitive to the needs of others. This is something I think that we would do well to remind ourselves of. If we're going to be more like Christ, this ought to be a place we could be more like him is to be sensitive to the needs of others. And believe me, I get it. I understand. I get it. You've got a gazillion things to do, right? You wake up in the morning and your to-do list is overflowing. And if you're like me, you wake up thinking about things that you forgot to put on your to-do list that you're trying to remind yourself of because there's too much to do. There's all kinds of distractions that pull on us. There are all kinds of things that continually shout for our attention, right? Like kids. (laughs) You have kids, you know what I'm talking about or work, or paying bills, or rotating the tires, or getting the oil changed, or cleaning the garage, or pulling the weeds, and, oh, never mind, you've got to go home and get ready because you've got a good kids' basketball game to get to. And then there's the filing of the taxes, and cooking of the dinner, and making sure laundry gets put away. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed, like, there's, this, like, there's this thing that happens in America. People will wash the laundry and, and dry the laundry, but like folding and putting it away, that is like, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And that doesn't even talk about the things that, that we, we that, that the extra things we struggle with, like like phone calls, you know, and text messages and emails and instant messaging and social media status updates. The fact that it, it's it's really easy for us to be self-absorbed nowadays because there's just too much to do. But here's the thing that we need to, we just need to come to terms with and not let that be an excuse for us. People have always had a lot to deal with, right? It's just a different set of priorities. Back then they had to deal with, I've got to eat today, otherwise I might starve to death. Right? They still had a lot to deal with too. But greatness in the kingdom is about being sensitive to the needs of others in spite of the fact that we have a lot to deal with. Which means we walk with Christ as we walk with him. We, we, lean, we learn to think not of ourselves first, but of others first. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do not do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What would the world look like if just the true Christians who really believe and are following Christ were to live that one verse out. 
How would that radically transform the world around us? That we would count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not to only your own interests, but the interests of others. You see, the Christian life is about taking the focus off of ourselves so that we can be sensitive to the needs of others. In other words, the Christian life is really about being selfless, which is exactly what we see in Christ. In this moment, he is completely selfless. Now, he certainly has other things to do, obviously. He has a mission he must accomplish. That's why he came. But Jesus, even with all that, he stops what he's doing, and he stops what the crowd is doing, Because he's selfless. Now, understand, he stops what the crowd is doing. If there's something that would prevent us from doing what we should be doing, it's going to be the crowd. Peer pressure messes with our heads bad, even as Christians. Right? I've seen people who are the nicest people. You get them in in a mop. Well, look, the the shelves are empty, right? I mean, what's the crowd doing? The crowd, suddenly people start picking up too much toilet paper and everybody else follows suit, right? It's, It's crazy. Jesus does the exact opposite of what the crowd is doing because he's selfless and sensitive to the needs of others. He sets aside his own priorities. He sets aside his own activities and he stops what he's doing to hear the cry of this man for help. He stops what he's doing in order to call this man over so that he can help him. This also is an area that I believe that we need to grow in to be more like Christ. Is We need to become more selfless. Paul says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Again, another verse that could actually have world-changing implications if we would learn to live this out. He also says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Like it's a competition in how you could be good, who could be better to each other. You see, the Christian life is different than the rest of the world. The Christian life is not meant to be focused on ourselves, it's meant to be focused on Christ and those around us. Remember, Jesus said, What are the greatest commandments? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first command. The second is like this, you shall love your neighbors yourself. It's about focusing on Jesus and then everyone else. Greatness in the kingdom is about growing in selflessness. It's also about growing in compassion. Notice that it says, and they called the blind man saying, take heart, go up, get up, and he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The thing that you need to understand here is that Jesus is fully God in the flesh. He already knows what the man needs. He already knows what what this man wants him to do for him. He already knows the man is blind. But he still asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Why does he ask that question? Because he's trying to engender this man's faith in him. Why why didn't Jesus just lay his hand on him and heal him and then go on his own way? He's already busy anyway. He he just could have just touched him, boop, and then dismissed him and then went his own way. He could have just done that. In fact, Jesus could have just lined up all the the sick up and just walked by giving everybody a high five like he's going down the tunnel. You know what I mean? But he doesn't do that with him. Instead, 
he took the time to connect with this man because, because he loved him. He took the time to love him. Jesus was demonstrating his great compassion for this man. Jesus cared about him. Right? This is the thing that we, we, we could lose sight of. Jesus stopped what he was doing. Jesus did what he did, not simply because he was obligated morally to heal the man. He did this because he cared about him. He cared about this man's sight, and, he, and most importantly, he cared about this man's soul. Jesus loved him and had great compassion for him. That's why he stopped. That's why he set aside his own activities, and, and that's why he was willing to inconvenience even the crowd. That's why he lovingly asked him to come forward and, and asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He had compassion on him. Greatness in the kingdom is about being compassionate. And again, if there's something we could grow in that I know that we probably struggle with, it is being compassionate. Not to say that you guys aren't loving people. I'm not saying that, okay? But rather, we're just really busy and very active and, and self-focused, and we forget that, 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 that there's a lot of people around us that need compassion, as we sing sometimes, everyone needs compassion. Right? Sometimes we struggle to give that compassion, especially to those who don't seem that important to us. Especially those who seem so stinking needy. There's a lot of that. Those who require us to stop what we're doing in order to help them. That's my struggle at times. I'm always so busy, right? Somebody wants to interrupt me, and I have to remember, like, my world isn't that important that I can't stop and help someone. Right? Or how about those people, when, when you help them, you realize it's going to require more than five minutes to help them. I think that we all have fallen in love with the, the sitcom idea or like the little house on the prairie idea, like in 45 minutes you resolve the greatest possible conflicts and everybody's happy, right? You, you, somebody wants, you want somebody to give you your problem, throw a Bible verse at them, give them a hug and a handshake, and they're good for life. That's what we expect. But it's not like that. Right? Let's be honest. It's easy. To be compassionate to the homeless guy that you don't know. Because what do you do? You give him a sandwich, a bottle of water, and five bucks, and he's on his way, and you're done. Right? You have no more invested but that. Right? It requires like five minutes of your day. You touch him quickly. God bless you. You're gone. And if you're really spiritual, then you actually go get one of them tracks and give him a gospel track too, Right? It's, it's, it's harder to be compassionate enough to invest time with someone to help them move. Like, you want to see people disappear? Say, hey, I'm moving this weekend. Right? It's harder to be compassionate to be a shoulder to cry on because that requires vulnerability and... Uh. It's harder to be compassionate enough to meet someone's needs over an extended period of time instead of like helping them today and then them being good. It's harder to be friends with someone who's just hard to be friends with. But that is the kind of compassion we need to grow in, the kind of compassion that causes us to put other people first, right? that causes us to willingly sacrifice, that causes us to slow down, that kind of compassion that causes us to serve and to value the very least valuable around us. Greatness in the kingdom is compassionate. And then notice it says, the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. He doesn't just say you're healed. He doesn't just touch him and then send him away. 
right? It says that, he said, go your way. He said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith. You see, Jesus did what he did not simply to heal his body. Because he could have done that with a touch. He did what he did to bring this man to faith. And understand, this man exercising his faith here is saving faith in Christ. He completely, he was helplessly dependent upon Jesus. He helped him. Right? He came to Christ in Christ alone. Jesus was not just restoring his sight. He was restoring this man's soul. His call to come forward was a call to exercise faith. And that's the greatest, that's what greatness in the kingdom is about. It's about continually calling other people to faith in Christ. Because the, because the greatest in the kingdom will always have an eternal perspective on everything that they do. Whether it's feeding the homeless guy, whether it is, it is loving your coworker who's whose spouse just left them, or buying some kid a pair of sneakers that need them. Everything we do as Christians must be done with an eternal perspective. We either must be calling people to faith in Christ, or we must be positioning ourselves to call people to faith in Christ. Why? Because if you feed them today, they're going to be hungry tomorrow. If, if, if you help them to overcome a challenge today, they will face another challenge later on. If you help them to overcome grief today, as sure as the sun comes up, at some point in their life, they will face grief again. We are absolutely called to value others and called to be sensitive to their needs. And we are called to be selfless and compassionate. But if we're not calling people to faith in Christ, hear me, church family, we're wasting our time. Because really, everybody else can do that. Atheists can be compassionate. Atheists can meet physical needs. Right? But if you're truly a Christian, if you believe in Christ, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you understand that, that, that everyone else's greatest problem is not going to be their hunger. It is not going to be that they're in poverty. It's not the fact that they're addicted or that they're homeless or that they've been abandoned or that they are suffering from depression or even cancer. Their greatest problem, their greatest need is the fact that they are spiritually blind. And they're in rebellion to a holy and righteous and just God whose wrath abides on them. Another thing that people don't want to talk about. And one day they will face that God and his justice and wrath will be poured out on them, not for a moment, but for eternity. That's their greatest problem. That's their greatest need. And just like this blind man, they are helpless helpless on their own to fix it. But then the good news, Christ is coming their way. Through you. Through you. Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, came into the world, fully God, fully man, to live the life that they could not live and to fulfill a law that they could not fulfill. And he went to the cross to pay a penalty that they have no ability to pay on their own. And in the greatest possible exchange on the cross, their sins, all of them, are credited to him. And then his righteousness through faith is credited to them. And Christ on the cross endured on their behalf the awful and terrible wrath of God, and he died in their place. That's a historical reality, brothers and sisters. 
that he was buried, and three days later he rose from the dead, proving that he is what he claimed to be, and proving that what he did actually worked. Jesus, in the greatest possible act of selflessness and compassion, set aside his own life so that we could be free of sin and death. And all they need to do is be good people and go to church. No. All they need to do is, as Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from their self-righteousness and turn towards Christ in faith and he will save them. Not maybe, not possibly. He will save them. If, if they will call out to Jesus the way this blind man did in, in utter helplessness, he will save them just like he did this blind man. True greatness in the kingdom. Hear me, brothers and sisters. True greatness in the kingdom always calls others to, to, to faith in Christ. You want to be like Jesus? Call people to faith in Christ. Now that's now that we have seen what it means then to follow Christ, because we're now at that point in the Gospel of Mark, it's becoming abundantly clear what it means to follow him, what is required to follow him. All right. Now that we see that, now that we see that what greatness in the kingdom really is, what are we going to do with it? It's not enough for us to be hearers of the word, we must be doers. So then I'm going to ask you, you don't have to answer this question for me because I can't answer it for you. But you can certainly answer it for yourself. How do you take this and apply this to your own life? Do you need to focus on valuing the least important people around you? Because we all have them, right? Or is it becoming sensitive to the needs of other people? I could certainly be a little bit more sensitive to that. Is it growing to be more selfless? Right? Or compassionate? Or do you, need, do, you, do you need to finally just get over yourself and just become bold enough and proclaim the gospel and call others to faith in Christ? I mean, all the other ones, people are probably like in their mind going, okay, I need to work on that one. But that whole gospel one, uh, let's push that one down the road. Why? Why? Why do we struggle with rejection? Why do we face, what, what, what do we fear? You know, that, calling people to faith in Christ. We know that's our greatest problem. Why? I'm not answering the question for you because you have to struggle with that yourself, right? My heart is this, is to ask you to come before the Lord in helpless dependence and say, Lord, I see what you're calling me to do. Now change me and help me do it. I want to be obedient, but I know I can't do it without you. I'm going to depend upon you to change my heart. Change my heart and give me the spirit and the power to live this out. That's what it means, by the way, to follow Christ. Following Christ is not some nebulous exercise. Right? We don't have to have little stickers on our cars and say, what would Jesus do? It's pretty simple. Following Christ is about loving and valuing even the least important in the kingdom and being willing to share the hope of Christ with everyone around us. By the way, that's the mission that we're called to, to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to do all that he's taught us to do. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.